Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Peppis, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is writer Karen Thompson-Walker, assistant professor of creative writing at the University of Oregon. Thompson-Walker is the author of the New York Times bestselling novel, The Age of Miracles, and more, most recently, The Dreamers, which was published in January of 2019. She gave a reading at the University of Oregon on February 13th, 2019. Thanks, Karen, for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. So how did you come to be a writer? How did you figure out that that's what you were gonna do with yourself? Oh, that's a big question. Um, you know, I mean, I always loved writing uh, as a child. I think then I think I went through a period, like as a young child, I, you know, I wrote little stories and I entered writing contests in elementary school and that kind of thing. And it was always my favorite um, subject, writing and reading. Um, but I feel like then I went through a time, maybe high school, where it, I kind of associated it with with childhood, I think. Like, it was like, okay, now time to figure out sort of what am I going to do, you know, in real life or something. And so then, but when I got to college, I took um, a creative writing classes at UCLA, one with Amy Bender and one with Mona Simpson. And those really, it was the, sort of this awakening that, you know, a person that write adults <laughs> write books, which I knew obviously, but just <laughs> that it could be a real, that it could be a real career maybe, uh, or a, a thing to take seriously. And I, I sort of dropped that association with, you know, childhood. Um, and I got just really excited about it and, and um, took as many creative writing classes as I could, uh, as well as my English classes. <laughs> and, you know, for a number of years, you were a, you're, you were a professional writer. And then you've decided to come into the academy. You want to say something about that? Um, yeah, you know, I used to, so I, I did my MFA, a graduate degree in writing, <clears throat> um, and then I needed to get a job, and the job I took at first was, um, I went into book publishing, so I was an assistant um, first, and then became an, a book editor, and I just loved the idea of being close to books, and I was at the same time writing my own uh, books, so I always imagined that I would have some kind of balance like that, where I'd have a day job at the same time as, as pursuing writing, um, but eventually I started to feel like book publishing was not a great balance, both um, literally in time, it just the, the, the kind of reading hours were hard, it was hard to fit in my writing around it and just all the endless meetings and stuff. Um, so I could feel that that wasn't gonna work. And then uh, I feel like uh, in academia, of course, that same risk <laughs> exists, but there is a bit of a built-in idea that it is part of my job to keep publishing books and keep writing books. So I appreciated that and I also feel like teaching uh, has been great for my writing in a way that book publishing, you know, being up close to the kind of marketing side of books was not great for me, you know, psychologically for an artist to be that close. Whereas um, academia, you know, working with students on their own writing uh, and trying to articulate the things that I have maybe come to understand about storytelling, those things are, are it's, it's just a side pleasure, of course, but it's also good for my own writing. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about The Dreamers. Um, the novel begins with an epigraph from the Portuguese Nobel laureate uh, Jose Saramago's novel, Blindness. And the quote is, that night the blind man dreamt that he was blind. Tell us first why you selected a quotation from Saramago's Blindness. Well, Blindness um, is one of my favorite books and it's just been a major influence for me for, for both of my books. And I think it's just, it was the first book that I read, uh, I read it in graduate school, where it took a kind of fantastical premise um, that was kind of wild and crazy. You know, it's a, it, a, a city suddenly, um, a, 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 an epidemic of blindness, a strange, mysterious blindness suddenly spreads through a city. Um, and of course, that's an imaginary premise, but then it took it so seriously. So to me, it feels like 
it's not exactly realism in the traditional sense, but it feels incredibly realistic and convincing and serious. And there was something exciting about that combination for me to have this wild, fantastical premise, but but taken so seriously, and to have such an interest in in just the human experience of of that situation. So that that was just has just been an important book for me always. Um, and then of course this time, so when I when I started thinking about writing a story of my own that involved a contagious, a mysterious contagious sickness, it felt natural to see if um, I could use a quote from from that book. And then of course there is this line about about dreams, and I feel like to me the meaning, I hope, is um, in that case it was like that the dreams are always whether it's you know our ordinary, I mean ordinary dreams. But or these sort of extraordinary dreams that take place in my book, they always are. Dreams are always connected to you know the, our actual real situations and our real psyches. You know they're not separate, and so that's what I, I hope that 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 quote would suggest. So you've begun to hint at the premise, but tell us what the premise of your book is. Right, right. I guess I got ahead of myself. Um, so yes, the dreamers is the story of a strange, contagious sickness, a sleeping sickness that is spreading through a small college town, and so um, begins on a college dorm floor and eventually spreads out through the community, uh, and eventually, <clears throat> and, the, and the symptom is just endless sleep. Um, people, they just can't wake up, and so after a while, it becomes clear that it's not just sleep, but it also involves some strange kind of otherworldly dreams. They detect that they're in REM sleep, and then they do these. They they track their brain waves and discover these people are dreaming more intense dreams than have ever been dreamt. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, would you mind reading the beginning of the novel oh, for us? Sure. Thank you. <clears throat> At first, they blame the air. It's an old idea, a poison in the ether, a danger carried in by the wind. A strange haze is seen drifting through town on that first night, the night the trouble begins. It arrives like weather, or like smoke, some say later, but no one can locate any fire. Some blame the drought, which has been bleeding away the lake for years and browning the air with dust. Whatever this is, it comes over the town quietly, a sudden drowsiness, a closing of the eyes. Most of the victims are found in their beds. But there are some who will tell you that this sickness is not entirely new, that its cousins have sometimes visited ours. In certain letters from earlier centuries, you may find the occasional reference, decades apart, to a strange kind of slumber, a mysterious, persistent sleep. In 1935, two children went to bed in a dust bowl cabin and did not wake for nine days. Some similar contagion once crept through a Mexican village. El Niente, they called it, the nothing. And 3,000 years before that, a Greek poet described a string of strange deaths in a village near the sea. They died, he wrote, as if overcome by sleep. Or, according to a second translation, as if drowned in a dream. This time it starts at the college. It starts with a girl leaving a party. She feels sick, she tells her friends, like a fever, she says, like the flu, and tired, too as tired as she has ever felt in her life. Two. The girl's roommate, May, will later recall waking to the sound of the key turning in the lock. May will remember the squeak of the springs in the dark as her roommate, her name is Kara, climbs into the bunk above hers. She seems drunk, this girl, the way she moves so slowly from door to bed. But the room is dim, 
and, as usual, they do not speak. In the morning, May sees that Kara has slept in her clothes. The narrow black heels of her boots are sticking out beneath the blankets of the upper bunk. But May has seen her do this once before. She is careful not to wake her as she dresses. She is quiet with her keys and with the door. She leaves only the slightest possible impression on the space, the comfort of not being seen. This is California, Santa Laura, six weeks into fresh May's freshman year. May stays away from the room all day. She feels better this way, still stunned by how quickly it happened, how the friendships formed without her, a thick and sudden ice. Each evening, Kara and the other girls on the floor stand in towels in the bathroom, blocking the sinks as they lean toward the mirrors to line their lips and eyes. May can hear them laughing from the desk in her room across the hall, their voices loud above the hum of the blow dryers. It takes time to get to know people, her mother said over the phone. Sometimes it takes years. But there are certain stories that May has not told her mother, like those boys who came to the door the first week of school. There was a bad smell in the hall, they'd said, and they'd tracked it to this room. It's like something died in here, they'd said, walking in without asking, filling up the narrow room, flip-flops and board shorts, baseball caps low on their heads. The boys got excited when they began to sniff around May's desk. That's it, they'd said, pressing their hands to their noses. It's got to be something in there. They'd pointed to the bottom drawer. What the hell do you have in there? It was her mother's dried cod, which had arrived in the company of three bars of dark chocolate and two lavender soaps. My mom makes it, she'd said. This is one of her mother's few inheritances from her own mother, May's grandmother, the only one in the family born in China and not San Diego. It's fish. She knows that these boys refer to her as quiet girl, as in, hey, quiet girl, it's okay to talk. She does not think of herself that way, as especially quiet. But there she was, as if under their, under their sway, suddenly not talking. Jesus, said the one named Tom, who is taller than the others and plays basketball for the school team. He'd tied a red bandana around his face, like a co-worker in a Civil War hospital. That is foul, he said. Every time she remembers it, that bandana over his face, her, arms turn, her face turns hot with the shame of it. In the end, she dropped the bag of cod down the trash chute at the end of the hall, ten floors down, the scrape of plastic on tin, while the boys gathered around her to make sure. Later, her roommate apologized. I didn't know they'd be like that, Kara said. This is how she learned that Kara was the one who told the boys about the smell in the room, though she'd said nothing at all to May. This is one of the reasons that May spends her afternoons at a campus cafe where, on this particular day in October, she waits until she is sure her roommate and the other girls will be gone from the floor, their hair dryers quiet, their flat irons cool, and the girls themselves enmeshed by then in the complicated rituals of sorority life. The boys, she hopes, will be at dinner. But when she gets back to the floor that night, nine hours after she left it, she finds a note written in red on the whiteboard that hangs on their door. We're leaving, it says. Where are you? These words, it is obvious, are meant for her roommate. When May unlocks the door, she finds Kara still lying where she left her that morning, her body curled toward the wall in the top bunk, her black boots still protruding from the sheets. Kara, she says softly. Outside, the sun is sinking. The sky is clear and turning pink. May switches on the overhead light. Kara, she says again. But Kara does not wake, 
not to the sound of May's pleading or to the louder voices of the two paramedics who soon detect, through her badly wrinkled dress, that she is breathing at least, that she still has a pulse. Kara sleeps through the screaming of the other girls as they see the way her head rolls back against the stretcher, the way her mouth hangs open, her brown hair falling loose across her face. She sleeps through the screeching of the crickets in the pine trees outside and through the cool night air on her skin. May stands barefoot on the sidewalk as the paramedics slide the stretcher into the bright bubble of the ambulance, a little roughly, thinks May. Be careful, she wants to say. And then the doors swing shut without her, leaving May alone in the street. The paramedics will later report that the girl sleeps through the wail of the siren, too, and the flashing of the lights. She sleeps through the bumps of the potholed streets as the ambulance rushes toward St. Mary's, where, after several attempts, two doctors find that they cannot wake her either. On the other floors of the hospital that night, women labor while the girl sleeps. Babies are born while she sleeps. She sleeps while an old man dies in a distant room, an expected death, his family gathered, a chaplain. She sleeps through sunrise and she sleeps through sunset. And yet, in those first few hours, the doctors can find nothing else wrong. She looks like an ordinary girl sleeping ordinary sleep. There will be some confusion later about what happened to her there, how her heart could have slowed so much without setting off the monitors. But this much is known to be true. Over the course of many hours, her shallow breaths turn gradually shallower. It is hard to say afterward why the final beats of her heart go unrecorded by those machines. So that passage, I think, gives a really good idea of the way you use realism to, to uh, elaborate this premise that is fantastical. Uh, and also the kind of range of human experiences that this book is concerned with. <clears throat> what we don't get from this passage, though it's very evident, is that there's, this isn't a story about May, though it is a story about May. It's a story about many people. Mm -hmm. uh, there's probably 10 characters that yeah. are frequently recurred to. Um, say a little bit about the decision to have many characters. I know in your previous book it focused more on a single protagonist. What, why did you make that choice? Yeah, I mean, um, I think it f there was something about uh, telling a, a contagion story uh, that made it feel right. You know, I was interested in, you know, I, I think one thing that interests me about contagion stories is the way that they um, inevitably sort of uh, parallel the bonds between people. You know, um, the person who lives alone in the woods is never going to catch the thing that is spreading through humanity. So I was interested in charting that a bit. You know, how how it, um, this this strange sickness would spread between you know people who are close friends, um, friends and relatives, but also people who just pass each other in the hall or you know um, or even you know or buy something in a store. You know, just just capturing that feeling of um, the, the kind of truth of of, of the community of the way that humans live in such close proximity. So, um, so anyway, I was interested in, in charting that that passage of the sickness, and so that it's, it felt like nat it felt natural to, to if I begin on a college dorm floor, it's going to spread through there, but then it's also going to spread out into the community. And so I, uh, it just felt like natural and and kind of yeah that it matched that I would sort of 
pick up the story from each new person. I mean, it doesn't ex it's not exactly quite that neat, but each new person that catches the sickness or is affected in some way by the sickness, you know, that we would go to that story. Mm -hmm. So it, given that that's your procedure, you've chosen a third person omniscient narrator. Right. We can hear it from the passages that you read. Um, and this narrator moves from each of these characters back and forth between these characters and tells us what's going on, how they're dealing with it, what's happening for them. Um, but there's also interesting limitations on the omniscience of this narrator. What are some of the things this narrator cannot know or does not know? <laughs> right. And why did you make those choices? I mean, <clears throat> I my first book was first person and I, it, I thought much less about what the rules of that voice were because, you know, in a first person narration, it, the rules are how any of us speak about our own past. You know, what you could know about the past is what a, what a you know, whatever is, po is possible to our ear, you know. Um, so in this book, there, a big part of the challenge at the beginning was figuring out, you know, the rules of this voice. Uh, and I wanted to be able to have that omniscient feel so that I could tell the story from this kind of um, maybe almost like a helicopter point of view at times, but then I really wanted to be able to zoom in close also. And I think one challenge about writing um, from an omniscient perspective is that theoretically, why like why is anything being withheld at any time? Right. <laughs> you know, right. um, so that's managing that is I think just always something that you have to figure out. So in this case, um, just like on a kind of technical level, I made a rule for myself, which I think there's a few places that it d uh, departs from this, but it was useful for me that each chapter or at least each section could only. Um, that voice could only could could enter the head of only one person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So so that that was one rule. But I could always I could zoom back out, you know, according to my own rules. But I had only one person at a time. So in that sense, like in a certain in a given scene, you know, you don't hear the other person's perspective. Mm -hmm. um, so that was one one rule for myself that helped me organize it. But then in another way, um, once they're asleep. I guess I felt like they had access. Then at first, I thought when I first started writing it that this omniscient narrator would have could have access to people, but only, but not when they're asleep. You know, as if they have to be awake for the, mm -hmm. the 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 voice to get in. But then once I started to explore these dreams, like at a certain point, I just it was irresistible to me <laughs> to not eventually uh, capture capture the dreams from the inside. Mm -hmm. um, so but, the, but you held off on that for quite a long time yes, in the novel. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, I mean, you know, some of that is, as a writer, it's, it's, it's experimentation, it's trial and error, and, you know, and I, I think it, it, I was interested in capturing what it would feel like to be on the outside of this mysterious, you know, if, you know, like there's a character whose wife, for example, um, it falls asleep, and that, that sudden uh, distance, I was interested in that. So, so I was, at first, been for a long time, focused on, yeah, capturing what that would be like, and then, but then, yeah, later on there's a dip into the inside. <laughs> so you're, there are certain sort of um, larger social questions that, that you access. So one is climate change. So in the passage that you read, you note in passing that there's this lake that's central to the town, which is drying up. Mm -hmm. And there are a couple of other times, there's one of the things that happens at one point is there's a big a wildfire that happens. Why, why did you and I mean, and there's a there's a character who's a kind of conspiracy theorist, survivalist type of character. Why did you want to put things? Is there was there some larger amb ambition to those kinds of inclusions? Um, I mean, I think I'm, almost, I'm always trying to make my, <clears throat> you know, in both my books, I've, I've, I've 
chosen these fantastical premises. Um, the, the first one, the, the rotation of the Earth is slowing down, and this one, this, the sleeping sickness. Uh, but at, once I make that big leap, um, I want it to feel like realism. And so to me, including um, you know, references and elements about climate change, um, or like in the case, it's a, a, you know, a, a drought in California in, in the book, um, feels like an element of realism, and it feels like it's, I want it to take place right now, and that's something that is, um, you know, that's, it's happening to us on our planet right now, and it just feels, it feels, so it just feels realistic that we would have, that those things would be part of it, and then, you know, perhaps there's, the book is also interested in like, a sense of doom and threat, that obviously climate change in the book and in, and in real life is sort of the main, one of the main threats that we as, a, as, as human beings and I guess, I guess the, the non-humans <laughs> as well, that we're all facing this huge threat. And so it, it just feels like it fits into my work. So you, you've just spoken quite eloquently about the importance of realism for you. So what attracts you to this sort of speculative fiction? That is to say that you're beginning with this pre premise which let's say is not realistic, yeah, yeah. let's hope is not realistic. Why, yeah. why, why is that? Important? You know, I feel like the, um, that part feels a little more intuitive to me. Like, you know, it just, it's, it's, it might be hard for me to even say what, why that, these kinds of stories capture my imagination. Mm -hmm. And in a weird way, they unlock my access to everyday life. Like it's a way of, uh, it's, a, it's actually for me a way of writing and giving a lot of attention to everyday life um, and the bond, the every, the ordinary bonds between people. Um, and I think it's, it, I think it's like I haven't quite figured out how to write. Of course, there's many great writers who do it, but I haven't quite figured out how to, how to kind of make a story feel urgent and interesting if it's only about ordinary life. But in a weird way, putting these characters in this extreme situation, suddenly the small things like filling up a bottle for a baby or changing a baby's diaper feel, take on this like, sense of um, meaning that maybe we don't always feel, especially if you're, if it's not your own baby in the moment, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, did you, do, did you have to do research about dreaming, about uh, contagion, about plague, things like that? Did you do that kind of thing? Yes, I did. I did a lot of research about, um, at first I did a lot of research about contagion um, and learned a lot of fascinating and, you know, some horrifying <laughs> details. I mean, I feel like I guess another thing about the fantastical stories is um, I purposely wrote about a type of sickness that's not, uh, it's, you know, it's not, it's not real. It has this element of kind of wonder to it. I wanted there to be this kind of extraordinary quality to it. Um, but I wanted it to be believable as you, as you read it, I mean, as, as you're reading it. So I, yeah, I learned about, you know, I did a lot of research about different kinds of sicknesses and how quickly they different ones spread and um, what would be the procedures that would be put in place in response if there was an outbreak of something new. Uh, and then I moved on at the, as I got further, I, I kind of write in sequential order of, of the story. So uh, I started to do more and more research on sleep and dreaming as I got further into the book and that was just fascinating. Um, I also, I went to a, a conference of <coughs> sleep researchers, which was, very interesting. Um, yeah, it was just all about different kinds of sleep disorders and, and things that affect sleep. Um, and I watched, you know, night vision footage of people experiencing night terrors and mm -hmm. sleepwalking uh, or seizures in their sleep. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, there was a lot of fascinating territory to, to explore. And you access a lot of this. I mean, there's a lot of um, sort of scientific 
kind of, I mean, there are sleepwalkers among those who right. get the sickness. And um, there are some passages where you, it's almost a kind of, you can, you at periods become, become kind of philosophical about dreaming and speculating about, you know, what are dreams? What do they do? What are they for? In some cases, it's like they're nothing. That's just where, you know, built up stuff is processed in other cases. Um, you've, you've spoken about the role of the imagination and particular the importance of fear in the imagination. You want to say something about that? Um, yeah, I, uh, I, I mean, I, I, I once did a TED talk about this idea that, that, um, that, that fear is actually an act of the imagination. Um, which, you know, might explain why a lot of people who are, well, well, one, why children who, you know, children have really wild imaginations and then sometimes that leads to wild fears about, you know, monsters under the bed or, you know, in my case was, you know, earthquakes in the middle of the night because I grew up in California, mm -hmm. although that would have, that would fit in Oregon as well. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, so I think there's just this natural, the, in a way, fear is this, you know, fear is, the act of having a fear is, um, it's, it's your imagination telling you a story about the future, you know, a dark story. Um, and so there's it's just this inevitable uh, connection between those two things. Um, and, and I don't know what, where you, I forget what, what you asked at the start of that, but just I think for me as a writer, that, that connection feels really deep between fear and the imagination. And in a way, I think writing these kind of scary stories, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a way of, um, for me, it's like I'm, I'm accessing the the track that my fears run on but it's imaginary and so i don't feel afraid though i can't i can't i'm not sure if the re if readers feel feel scared so there's a couple of places in the novel um where we get a sense of the sort of that maybe these dreams that the dreamers have um gave them some kind of special foresight or um and uh, say a little bit about that decision on your part you know yeah um you know, I didn't set out to write. It's not like I knew uh, that I was going to be writing about dreams. Like it would have surprised me when I first started the book that that I was going to be writing so much about dreams. But mm -hmm. it just became increasingly fascinated because I think it's just one of those. Um, it's one of those like just ordinary real dreams are one of those um, elements of human life that that are that are actually uncanny. You know, it, even though we do it's it's every single day. We or maybe we don't always remember dreams, but you know we all have dreams. It's part of our ordinary life, and yet when you look at it, it's really quite strange um, and mysterious, and, and yeah, it has this this uncanny quality. So, <clears throat> um, so so just dreams, ordinary dreams, I think have that quality. But then I was interested in doing something, you know, maybe having these dreams be in some way different. Um, and yeah, I'm also interested in time, um, and I've read, you know, I'm no expert in physics, but I'm fascinated by the kind of, um, the idea that the way that human beings experience time, you know, as a clear past, present, future is, doesn't necessarily make sense in the context of, um, you know, time in the universe. Um, so I was, I was interested in playing with that idea. And so I liked the idea that maybe this sleep and these dreams, um, in some way jumbled or changed the way that people experienced time and so then one of those ways is potentially seeing the future before we feel we think it's happened yeah so there are these moments where it's you the reader does not cannot determine whether these people are actually seeing the future or not yes right right and right. um so we've got like 20 seconds left so this will be my last okay. question um have you read anything recently that you would recommend um 
let's see, I feel like I should use this to, to give you something really surprising that you haven't heard of, but I'm actually, instead, I'm in the middle of um, Michelle Obama's memoir, and it's, I just think it's amazing. Like, I knew I would be interested because I'm interested in her, and she's amazing, but what I didn't realize um, is that there would be, like, so much art to the language. I mean, I was, I, I'm actually listening to it on my drive, and it just, I feel like she writes like a, like a novelist, like a poet. I, I mean, I was, especially about her childhood, I was just, I wanted to write down the sentences and show them to my students, and I was, that was just an amazing, it's just amazing that, she, that among her other talents, she apparently is also a really gifted writer. Well, thank you so much for that recommendation. <laughs> thank you for taking the time to speak with us about your book, The Dreamers. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. I've been speaking with the writer Karen Thompson-Walker, assistant professor of creative writing at the University of, of Oregon. Thompson-Walker is the author of the New York, New York Times bestselling novel, The Age of Miracles, and most recently, The Dreamers, which was published in January of 2019. She gave a reading at the University of Oregon on February 13th, 2019. Thanks so much for watching. <laughs>